Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We finished our time in John 6. We spent six sermons going through that uh, amazing chapter. We have learned so much from that chapter. I honestly think that we travel deeper into theology as a church than we ever have before. Uh, We raise a lot of questions. We answer a lot of questions. We probably got Uh, Just left with even more questions, but God's word will answer those. So we do have to depart from John 6 and move into John 7. John 7 moves ahead seven months. So as John 6 ends, uh, there was a feast of uh, Passover um, that Jesus was at. John 6 ends, uh, and then we fast forward seven months uh, to John chapter 7, verse 1. We are nearing the end of Christ's life. Uh, We're only in John 7. We're not nearing the end of John's gospel, but we are nearing the end of Christ's life already. John 7 is six months removed from the feeding of the 5,000, but six months until the last Passover that Jesus is going to celebrate. So six months removed from John 6, uh, or seven months removed from John 6, and seven months until the the last Passover. So we're close to the last moments of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're nearing the end of his life, and as you know, towards the end of his life, greater hostility uh, became a a huge issue, and Jesus is going to face that. Even this morning, in John chapter 7, he's going to face hostility, not just from the crowds that left him in John 6, but from the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, the elite, and even from his own brothers, he's going to receive some um, antagonistic comments. So I just want to read these verses. We're going to read through verses 1 through 24. And then we will ask the Lord to bless our time. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Because not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up for this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking Jesus at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. 
Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses had given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Father, open our eyes. We need to see Jesus. We need to see ourselves. And God, what a a perfect moment to do that here as we contemplate communion as we prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. May we stare inward this entire sermon to see our depravity, and then may we look to Christ. So show us ourselves. We are just like the brothers, and we are just like the crowds. Show us ourselves, and then show the mercy and the grace that we have at the feet of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. For the point of our time this morning, we just have two points uh, for our outline. We're just going to look at the unbelief of the brothers and the unbelief of the crowds. The unbelief of the brothers, verses 1 through 10. The unbelief of the crowds, verses 11 through 24. So let's start with the unbelief of the brothers. The, the question that I want to ask as we go through these two people groups, the brothers and the crowds, the question that I have is, why do they both not believe? Is there something common in their unbelief? They look totally different. Their unbelief presents itself totally different. But as you dig down, my question this morning is, is there a common element? And I want to show you that I believe the Bible tells us that there is a common element in the unbelief of the brothers and the unbelief of the crowds, even though they look totally differently as they present their unbelief. So verse one, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. He's unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So already we know the Jews want to kill him. The religious leaders want to kill him. Remember, whenever John uses that word Jews, it's religious leaders. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the people, uh, the religious elite in Judaism. They want to kill him. After these things, again, it's, it's seven months removed from the feeding the 5,000. We have seven months to go until the last Passover where Jesus is going to take the Passover on Thursday of the Passion Week, be crucified on Friday of the Passion Week. Passover is in April. Um, this is the feast, as we're going to see in verse 2. This is the feast of the Jews called the Feast of Booths. There were, there were three feasts of the Jews. There was Passover, which happened in March, late March, early April. Um, then you have uh, the Feast of Pentecost, which happens 50 days after Passover. And then you have the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which happened September, October. Um, So this is one of those feasts. There's three main feasts. This is one of those feasts. It's the Feast of uh, Booths. It was near. So, um, by the way, I I love, we talked about this today in Family Bible Hour with synoptic gospels and using other gospels to harmonize what's happening. Jesus was doing a lot of things between the feeding of the 5,000 and this moment here in John chapter 7. Uh, Seven months, what was Jesus doing? Jesus was doing a lot that John doesn't describe. He doesn't need to describe because we have it in the synoptic gospels. Uh, He was going into Galilee. He was staying in Galilee. John says that. But he was training his disciples. Uh, 
Um, The crowds left. The crowd said, we're done. So he says, okay, I'm going to speak to my disciples and prepare their hearts. This is when he first starts telling his disciples that he's going to die. He goes specifically to Gentile regions so that he's um, shot by the crowd, by the Jewish people. He goes to Tyre and Sidon in the northwest. He goes to Decapolis in Mark chapter 7 in the northeast. He goes to the Golan Heights in the far north uh, where he is transfigured. All that takes place in those seven months. He disappears from the public arena. He still does um, miracles here and there, but he's teaching and training his disciples. And just a, a side note here. Jesus gave two days to the crowds in John 6. He gave two days to the crowds. He gives about one year to the disciples. What do you think Jesus' priority in his earthly ministry is? It's discipleship. That's why he's going to command us in the Great Commission, make disciples. Make disciples. This is a challenging thing to do to make disciples. Notice Jesus' command is not go get a crowd, even though in today's evangelical landscape we tend to see success as a crowd. That's not what Jesus said. Success isn't the size of the crowd that you have. Success is discipleship that's happening in whoever God has given to you. The Bible doesn't say do whatever you need to do to get a crowd and you'll be good. Getting a crowd, as Jesus proves, is decently easy if you do really cool things. So a lot of the movements out there today in church growth is just do things that will invite people to come in and draw a crowd. The problem is, if you claim that success is just the size of the crowd, and there's no discipleship taking place, then the Bible would say you haven't fulfilled the Great Commission no matter how big your crowd is. So the Bible doesn't say do what you need to do to get a crowd and you'll be good. The Bible says get the crowd, invite people in, get the crowd, but then hit them with the words of Jesus. Let the words of Jesus do the job. And as the words of Jesus go out, the crowd is going to diminish. The crowd will diminish. So our job as a church is draw a crowd, get the word of God into the crowd, and let whoever wants to leave based on the word of God leave. And whoever stays, we have our mission. We disciple those who stay. That's why Paul says, I'm going to live in such a way, for Thessalonians, that you can imitate me. I'm going to draw a crowd. I'm going to call you. I'm going to preach in the highways and the byways of the city. And then we're going to draw a crowd into this church, and we're going to preach the gospel, and a lot are going to leave. And as they leave, we're going to say, that's okay. We're going to pray for them. We're going to keep on evangelizing them. But now you're going to follow me as I follow Christ. Be imitators of me. Do what I'm doing. And that's all discipleship is. So Jesus is doing that in these seven months. In Galilee, he's discipling the twelve. The Jews are seeking to kill him. The feast of the Jews, the feast of tabernacles is near. You can look at Leviticus chapter 23. There's a lot to be said about the feast of tabernacles, and we'll get into it in a couple weeks. Um, but just for, for your understanding now, feast of tabernacles, um, the, the Leviticus chapter 23 is the chapter that you need to go to that describes this feast. It was a remembrance of how God had provided and protected in the wilderness wanderings. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was. It it was, Josephus tells us, it was the most uh, joyous celebration of the three festivals, the three feasts of the Jews. It was the most happy, most joyous one. Um, You would make a little tent to remind remind you of how they were making tents constantly and nomads in the wilderness wandering around. Um, 
There's a lot that has to do with light, which Jesus is going to include in what he's saying. He's going to say, I'm the light of the world. There's a lot that has to do with water, where he's going to say, I am the living water. He's going to offer himself as the living water. Water because, uh, remember, Moses had hit the rock and the the water had come out. God provided for them. So this is just a big remembrance, just the way that Passover is. It's a big remembrance of how God had protected and provided in the wilderness wanderings. It's a very, very happy time, and it's a feast that everyone had to go to. This feast, uh, the Bible says, needs to happen between the 15th and the 21st of the month of Tishri, which is September and October. Um, they have lunar calendars uh, unlike us, so it was, a, it was a different timetable. So if we do the math properly, chronologically, we date everything. Since Jesus is going to die the Passover of AD 33, then we can go back to AD 32, September, October, and we can figure out that this would have been September 10th, through the 17th in AD 32. That's where we are in time. By the way, why do you need to know this? Uh, The reason why you need to know about the Feast of Tabernacles, not only to unlock your understanding of what Jesus is going to say when he says, I'm the light of the world and I'm the living water. um, you, You also need to know it because in Zechariah 14, God tells us that in the millennial kingdom, which you and I will be a part of, in the millennial kingdom, we celebrate this feast again. We celebrate this feast together. So the better you understand it now, the better you'll be able to enjoy it then instead of just scratching your head. What are we doing? Why is this happening? Now, this you can understand now so that you can really understand it in the millennial kingdom. So, Feast of Booze is near. They're going to go up. Verse 3, Therefore his brothers said to him, Now listen to his brother's words. Leave here, go into, into Judea, Go from the north in Galilee down to south to Judea. Go to Jerusalem so that your disciples also, the, the other crowds that are in the south, may see your works, which you are doing. We want them to see your miracles because no one does anything in secret when he's wanting to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you're claiming to be Christ, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah, show yourself to the world. Show yourself. Don't hide been seven months he's been in seclusion don't hide here's one of the keys of what the the brothers are thinking by the way we know who the brothers are matthew 13 uh, verse 55 james joseph simon and judas Um, those are the four that are stated Um, so we we know that there's at least four brothers we know james and jude from the new testament are half brothers we know there's at least four brothers here And they're coming to Jesus, and they're saying something that sounds okay. We want you to be known. We want you to gain followers. So go do what you're doing. Gain your followers. Here's one of the issues of what the brothers are seeing. The brothers misunderstand why the crowds left uh, Jesus, why they departed. The brothers think the reason why your mission jesus in being known and being received isn't a success the reason why is because you have bad publicity you need to go out you need to go into the world you need people to see you go do miracles everywhere get better advertisement and then you'll have a crowd what the brothers don't understand is the reason why jesus's mission is a seemingly failing mission is not because of anything jesus is doing or not doing it's because of the sin in man's heart not receiving And I think it's key when they say, if, in verse 4, if you do these things, if, said three times by Satan, Matthew 4, in the 
temptations. If you do, they don't really believe him. And John's going to say that in verse 5. For even his brothers were not believing in him. And my question is, why are they saying what they're saying? Why are they saying what they're saying? They say, we want you to be known. We want you to be heralded as the Messiah and the Son of God. We want you to be publicly known. Show yourself to the world. And John says, they're saying that because they don't believe Jesus. What's the connection there? That's really weird when I read that. We want you to be known. We want you to be seen as the Son of God because we don't believe you. Why are they saying that? I think that John is really throwing this on our face so that we will ask that question. Unbelief has permeated chapter 6. It's all the way in chapter 2. Really, I mean, the whole gospel. Chapter 1, they didn't believe. They didn't receive him. And so here he's asking the question again. What does unbelief look like? What's the root of unbelief? So what are the brothers wanting? The brothers are wanting to ride in on Jesus' coattails into the glory that he's going to receive. The brothers say, hey, we want glory And we can get glory if you do miracles, you gain a crowd, and we say, hey, we know him, he's our brother. We want glory. So they love Jesus because they think that Jesus can get them what they want, namely the praises of man, glory from mankind. If we follow Jesus and Jesus goes in and does all these miracles, then we can get the the, the splash of God's glory. We want glory for ourselves. So their love for the praises of man is the root of their unbelief. You might ask, how do you see that here? I want to give you four reasons why I think that's the case. So just four quick proofs. Number one, his brothers want Jesus to go to Jerusalem to show his miracles to the world. And Jesus says, verse 6, I'm not going with you. I'm not going with you. So the brothers say, we want you to go with us. And Jesus says, I'm not going with you. But then he does end up going just not with the brothers and not the way that the brothers wanted him to go. So why did the brothers want him to go? Why does Jesus say, I'm not going? Because the brothers are wanting him to go to show all the miracles, to show his deity, to show his glory so they can say, I know him. Look at how amazing I am. That's why they want him to go. And so Jesus says, I'm not going. I'm not going with you. I'm not going that way. I'm not doing that. Then, number two, when Jesus does go to Jerusalem and does go public, he privately walks to Jerusalem, but then he goes public in Jerusalem. When he finally goes public, he goes public with teaching, not with miracles. The brothers are saying, do miracles, do miracles, do miracles, be known. And Jesus goes and says, I'm not doing a miracle. I'm going to teach. I'm going to be known for my teaching. And in his teaching, he's going to exalt God, not exalt himself. Number three, in verse 7, Jesus says, my time's not come, uh, your time's always opportune, and the world cannot hate you. It hates me because I, I testify of it that its deeds are evil, but the world cannot hate you. Why? Because the passion that you have is the exact same passion the world has. So the world's not going to hate you. You both love the same thing. And what does the world love? This would be number four, chapter 5, verse 43 and 44. It's already been stated that the world loves glory to seek glory, to receive glory. And John has says, uh, John says in, in John 5 that if you seek glory, you cannot believe in Jesus Christ. If you want the praise of man, if you want the glory of man, you cannot believe. So those four reasons, I believe, point to the fact that his brothers aren't believing in him because they just want glory. They want the praise of man. 
Jesus says, verse 6, my time is not yet come. Um, your time's always opportune. The word time there in the Greek, not uh, chronos, meaning um, hour, minute, or second, but kairos, meaning uh, appointed time sovereignly ordained. You can do whatever you want because you don't have a timetable when you need to get to the cross and die for the sins of the world. You can do whatever you want. I have a timetable that God has sovereignly ordained for me. The world can't hate you because you have the same passions as the world. It wouldn't hate itself. It hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Remember, we said this last week, Jesus is hated not because of his works, but because of his words. And here it is again. They hate me because I testify. I speak out against the sin of the world. So, verse 8, you go up yourself. I'm not going up to this festival at this time. My time hasn't fully come. I need to wait. So he waits. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. So his brothers leave. They go to the feast. And then after they're gone... Jesus goes up by himself, not publicly, as if in secret. He goes through Samaria. Uh, this is detailed for us in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He goes through Samaria. This is where uh, James and John want to call down fire from heaven. Um, goes to the feast. And it's all in secret. His brothers just want him to be known. So the unbelief of the brothers is they love Jesus because they want to gain the glory that Jesus alone should receive. They want the praises of man. So their unbelief, the root of unbelief is, I want the praises of man. So I can't believe in Jesus because he's going to say, I get all the glory and I don't want that because I want glory. But they love Jesus. Now let's look at the unbelief of the crowds, the Jewish crowds. Verse 11, so the Jews were seeking him at the feast and they're saying, where is he? Because the whole caravan has showed up, the family showed up, the brothers are there, where's Jesus? There's much grumbling. There's our word again, gungosmos. There's, there's a lot of grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Again, escalation of hostility. Some are saying, he's a good man. He's a good man. He's got nothing wrong. Others are saying, no, on the contrary, he's leading people astray. But no one is speaking openly of him because they fear the Jews. We're going to see this in John chapter 9. If you ever cross the Jewish leaders, they make life awful for you. Uh, if you're a Jew and you cross the Jewish leaders in John 9, they're going to excommunicate a family out of the synagogue or the, the blind man who's blind no more. They're going to excommunicate him. And you don't just lose your fellowship in the synagogue. You lose your uh, livelihood. You lose your job. So they don't want that happening. So they're not speaking. They're just kind of talking amongst each other. Which, by the way, that's a terrible leader. Leaders should be people where you're free to say anything, ask anything, dialogue about anything. The leaders at CBC would gladly and desperately desire this, that there's always an open door, not like these Jewish leaders who say so much against things that you're afraid to speak to them. So verse 14, in the middle of the feast, so the feast is a week long, in the middle of it, Jesus gets up, goes to the temple, and starts teaching. He takes over the temple. The Jews are astonished at what he's saying. So this is the religious leaders, verse 15. The Jews, the religious leaders are astonished. And they say, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? What they're, they're trying to do is discredit Jesus. Uh, they're saying, don't listen to what he's saying because he didn't go to seminary like we did. Don't listen to what he's saying. He's not a part of the Pharisaical union like we are. Who, who gave him his credentials? Who gave him his teaching credentials? This doesn't work. They had tried to do this a myriad of times in Jesus' life. We see a couple where they say, 
Uh, does anything good come from Nazareth? You're from Nazareth? Oh, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Discredit him. Or uh, you do the, the miracles that you do by the power of Satan, discredit him. We don't want to believe the message that he's proclaiming, so we'll discredit any way that we possibly can. So they discredit. They say, you haven't been educated. Normally, uh, Jewish rabbis would say, the, what I know is true based on what Rabbi so-and-so told me. And what Rabbi so-and-so told me, he knows is true from the tradition of Rabbi so-and-so. And so you just keep going back. Where'd you get your knowledge, Jesus? Nobody taught you. You're not talking about Rabbi so-and-so. And Jesus says, verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. It's not mine. I'm not, I don't have to talk about a rabbi. I talk about God. God's words go through me to you. God's words go through me to you. You have people ask you, why should I believe in Jesus? Why should I believe that his words are true? He says a lot of hard things. We just saw a couple of them in John chapter 6. I think that Jesus stands up for himself, so to speak, defends the claims that he's making here in four ways. Four reasons why we should believe his claims, that they are true. Reason number one is very clear. He says, my teaching comes from God. This is the divine teaching. It's coming from God. It's not coming from me. It's not coming from man. So the question is not, is my teaching right? It is, because it comes from God. The question is in verse 17, and this is a crucial question. Verse 17, if anyone, so again, universal call, anyone can do this. If anyone is willing to do his will, then he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. If anyone's willing to know the truth, he will know the truth. If you're willing to receive the truth, you will receive the truth. What does this mean? F.F. Bruce says it this way. It is not simply intellectual penetration that will determine truly whether Jesus' claims to impart the Father's teaching is well-founded or not. An attitude of the heart is needed. So it's not about, can I argue, can I debate, can I figure out if this is true? It's an attitude of the heart. If your heart's not ready to receive, then you're not going to see it as true. He goes on, if there is a readiness to do the will of God, to do his will, then the capacity for discerning God's message will follow. So if there's a readiness to do the will of God, then a capacity for understanding it will follow. So you need to humble yourself, be willing to do the will of God, and then as he teaches you, you will understand it. D.A. Carson helps us out here as well. He says, are Jesus' claims truthful? Here, Jesus insists that the question cannot be decided by rigorous debating procedures of the rabbinical schools. There is a moral dimension involved. Jesus has already insisted that free human decisions about his claims are impossible. John chapter 6, verse 44. You aren't free to decide the Father's going to draw or not. But here, he articulates what from the human side is possible and necessary to a right assessment of his teaching. So, again, compatibilism here. God is 100% sovereign in salvation, and you are 100% responsible in salvation. God draws, and you can't come unless he draws you, and if you aren't willing to come to him, you can't come at all. So Jesus himself says, from the human vantage point, you can do something, and it's called humble yourself. Be willing. Be willing. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find it out as true. 
D.A. Carson continues. So the point is not that a seeker must obtain a certain God-approved level of ethical achievement before venturing an assessment as to whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God, but that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. Man, how many times do we see this in evangelism? Uh, In our church, we've had conversations like this where people speak the words of, I, I want to believe, but I have to figure these things out before I can submit. I mean, we talked before about, okay, then, then tell me, what is it? Give me a list of things standing in the way between you and believing in Jesus. We write the list out. Noah's Ark, how can everybody fit? Uh, Jonah swallowing, being swallowed by a fish, how is that real? Uh, you write out all the things. So you hold the piece of paper and you say, okay, so you're telling me that if I can answer all these questions for you, then you will believe in Jesus, Right? No one has ever said yes. They always say, no, I still won't believe. So now I can just throw the paper away. It's not about that then. What is it about? You're not willing to receive him. You're not willing to come to him. All these smokescreen arguments of I need to know this before I submit. No, you need to be willing to submit before you know. You can't know until you willingly come and submit. One pastor says it this way, when your willing is in sync with God's, your knowing will be in sync with the truth. If your will is to do God's will, then you can know whether Jesus is a true spokesman for God. I mean, what countercultural understanding. If you're willing to do God's will, then you'll know if it's true. The way that you can know if it's true is whether or not Jesus himself is seeking his own glory or giving glory to the Father. And that's number two. So number one, teaching, Jesus' teaching comes from God, not from himself. Are you willing to receive it? Number two, the second reason why we know that his claims are true is he says that he is not seeking his own glory in verse 18, but he's seeking the Father's glory. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. So if I was speaking from myself, if these words were not God's words, then I would just be speaking to seek my own glory which his brothers were doing and the crowds ultimately want. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. He is true. I am true because I'm seeking God's glory, not my own. I'm not living for glory from man. I'm living for God to be glorified. So he is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. Number three, the the third reason why Jesus' claims can be seen as true is that he declares man is sinful and unable to keep the law. And that is a true statement. Verse 19, didn't Moses even give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. That would be a huge offensive statement to a Jewish Pharisee. You don't even carry out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He knows that they're seeking to kill him, which it says in verse 1, they are seeking to kill him. And they say, oh, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Whether this is the crowd that's genuinely asking that question, nobody said that because they haven't heard the religious leaders say that. Or whether these are people, I kind of picture they're yelling, going, no, we, we don't. And they have like a sword behind their back. Who's seeking to kill you? Not us. You know, they're, they know they want him dead and, and they're trying to fight against him. And Jesus answers and he says, I did one deed. This goes all the way back. He's going back to John chapter 5 of healing the man, the paralytic man um, at the pools of Bethesda. You all marveled at that. And I did it on the Sabbath and you told me that I was wrong for doing it on the Sabbath. For this reason, verse 22, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's on, uh, from Moses, but from the fathers. It's ultimately from Abraham, not from Moses. 
And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. So the law says you have to be circumcised on the eighth day. So if you happen to be born in such a way that the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, then the Jews are willing. We got a dilemma. Do I keep the Sabbath and not circumcise on the eighth day? Or do I circumcise on the eighth day and break the Sabbath? What do I do? And the Jewish leader said, well, it's better to keep the, the finer point of the law in circumcision here. Uh, so we'll break Sabbath. We'll do work on the Sabbath to circumcise somebody. Jesus says, if you circumcise a man, verse 23, on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, why are you angry with me? Because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath. So you're willing to break the Sabbath to take a portion of flesh from somebody but you're not willing to break the Sabbath to make someone whole and well and complete. So he says, don't judge according to appearance. Judge with righteous judgments. And this is point number four. So his claim, the four reasons why we can believe that his claims are true. Number one, his teaching comes from God. Number two, he's not seeking his own glory, but the Father's. Number three, he's declaring that man is sinful, and that is true. We are unable to keep the law. And number four, Jesus' deeds are righteous. And they testify to his claims. Jesus' deeds are righteous. He's saying, look, I can defend my deeds. They're righteous. Why do you judge by appearance and get angry instead of judging with righteous judgment? They say, who wants to kill you? But they do. They want him dead. So, Jewish crowds, what are they wanting? They want the glory of man. They want the praise of man. But, so it's the exact same thing that the brothers wanted. The brothers want the praise of man, and because they want the praise of man, they love Jesus. Because Jesus can get that for them. The crowds want the praise of man, and because they want the praise of man, the Jewish leaders want the praise of man, and because they want the praise of man, they hate Jesus. Why? Because the way that the religious leaders got the praises of man is by keeping the law in its entirety. Look at how amazing we are. Look at the leaders that we are. Look at how much of the law we know and and how we keep every single aspect of the law. That's how they got the glory of man. Men looked at them and said, oh, we are unworthy to be in your presence. Look at how awesome you are. And here comes somebody, verse 19, who says, you don't even carry out one aspect of the law. You can't even keep the law. So when Jesus comes and says, the very thing that you think is giving you praise, you're actually not doing, and just unmasks their masquerade, if you will, they say, we want you dead. So brothers say, we want you alive. We want you to show yourself to the world because we can get glory through you. Crowds say, we want you dead because you're taking the glory that we already have away from us. Totally different presentation. Exact same heart behind the unbelief. Turn back to chapter 5. I just want you to be reminded. Chapter 5, verse 43. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? You can't. So the brothers cannot believe. They don't believe because they seek glory from one another. The religious leaders cannot believe because they seek glory from one another. The common root, though the presentation is totally different, the common root between the brothers and the crowds is the love of the praise of man, the love of the glory of man, self-exaltation, and not the grace of God. Unbelief stems from a love for the praises of man. 
That's where unbelief comes from. It stems from a love for the praises of man. This isn't a sermon that's just for non-believers, right? Like, non-believers, you need to stop loving the praises of the man, and then you can be a believer. This is a sermon for believers, because by nature, we are born as people who desperately crave the praises of man. Notice what I do and praise it. Know how hard I work and praise it. Look at me and love me. I mean, we love and crave the praises of man. And the bad news in this text and in John 5 is that you cannot be saved if that is all you are living for. If all you are living for is the praise of man, you cannot be saved. So if you are saved, your heart has changed. But we know that your heart keeps on saying, I want my praise, I want my glory, I want it back. I want it back. This is pride. Pride at its, at its core is the craving for human approval. And if pride is everything that you're living for, human approval, then you can't have faith because faith at its core is humble gladness in the grace of God. It's humble gladness in the grace of God. Humility says, I've got nothing. You have no reason to praise me because I have nothing good to offer you. Praise God. Don't praise me. Comes to Jesus poor in spirit, broken in heart. So, therefore, pride gets angry when grace starts approaching. The crowds get angry when Jesus starts approaching because grace starts approaching to say, hey, if you want me, then you have to say you have done nothing right. And pride says, I've done a lot of things right. Who are you to tell me I've done nothing right? Pride says, I want recognition that I did something good here. And when grace comes in and says, no, actually, God did all of the good, you're either going to say, You're right, God did do all the good. Yes, that's what I want, give him glory. Or you're going to say, no, I want him dead. Get him out of here because I want glory. I want my praise and you're stealing my praise away. So the brothers were lovers of the praise of man and not lovers of the grace of God. The Jewish crowds and leaders pursued praise from man in their own works and not in the grace of God. We need the change that's happening in verse 17 and 18. We need the change that goes down to the deepest part of our hearts, that changes the willingness, the humility in our hearts. So how do we know? How do we know if this is a craving for us? Can I just say it this way? How do you know if you crave the praises of man? This is the best test. And, and if, if you, like me, crave the praises of man, this test is going to happen a lot in your life. The best test of whether or not you love the cra- crave, love, and cherish the praise of man is what you do when you don't get it. What do you do when people don't praise you? And actually, it said the opposite. What do you do when people criticize you? What do you do when people criticize you? By nature, we are all like the brothers. We are all like the crowds. We love the praises of man. So when somebody comes along and doesn't praise you, uh, in in fact, the other way, doesn't even acknowledge what you've done or criticizes you for what you did, maybe it's wrong, they think it's wrong, what do you do? Do you fight and do you demand? No, no, no. You need to see why I did that. You need to see my heart. You need to to see. I'm going to show you how good I was. I'm going to show you. Um, I can't tell you how many times somebody has come up to me and said, I I think that you didn't do that right. And my knee-jerk reaction, because I am a sinful, prideful person at the core, is, really? Let me tell you everything I did right in that. I did all of these things right. You're, You're telling me I did that wrong? You're not understanding how awesome I am. 
Um, we've been studying this with uh, gospel treason, idols of the heart. I think we all have an idol ultimately somewhere in our heart of the praises of man or respect or wanting recognition. How do we fight that? This is the way I've been fighting it recently. What did Jesus do? So, so I'm not in the same category as Jesus by any means. So we can just start there. I'm a sinner through and through. Jesus was perfect. And he perfectly teaches. He perfectly speaks. He perfectly admonishes. He perfectly corrects. He, he perfectly humbly does everything that he does. And what happens to him? Everybody says, no, you're a fool. You're demon-possessed. You are an illegitimate child. They just go on and on. You are terrible, and we're going to kill you. False witnesses come and speak out against him. Uh, he's mocked on the cross. And instead of standing up for himself and saying, you're getting this all wrong, guys. Look at, look at this. Look at what I did. Instead of doing that, First Peter says that he keeps his mouth shut and entrusts himself to, Je- to the Father. Jesus entrusts himself to the Father. I don't need to defend myself. It's not about my self-exaltation. So if you're not giving that to me, I'm okay. And more than that, and this is the best test of whether grace has gripped your heart, he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. So it's not, no, 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 don't tell me that I did that because I didn't do anything wrong. And it's not, you're doing something wrong, which Jesus easy, easily could have said, excuse me, you're killing the Son of God. And instead he just says, no, I want forgiveness to be granted to them. And his prayer is answered, by the way. I want forgiveness. They haven't even asked for it. They haven't even sought you out to say, oh, by the way, we shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus humbles himself to say, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. If you need, like me, in your, to my shame, in my heart of hearts, in my sinful depravity, if you need uh, the, the glory of man more than the glory of God, if you need the praises of man more than you need the, the, the glory of God to be seen, then you're never going to be able to say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You're never going to be able to say that. You're never going to be able to forgive. You're never going to be able to humble yourself. That's why it's willingness is the issue. Christ crucified, staring at the gospel and Christ crucified destroys pride. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That destroys pride. Oh, to be like Jesus in utter humility. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So I want to end here. Um, James. James is one of the brothers, right? James is one of the brothers that's identified in Matthew 13 as not believing in Jesus. Why did he not believe? Turn to James 4. We know ultimately in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he did believe. Why did he not believe? James chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your desires, your passions that wage war in your members? You lust, you don't have. I want glory for man and I don't get it. So you commit murder. That's what the Jews are going to do. You're envious. You can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's what the brothers are going to do. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. They, they ask Jesus to go do what he's doing with wrong motives, so he doesn't do it. You adulterers, verse 4, do you not know that the friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you not think that the scripture speaks with no purpose? He is jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. He gives a greater grace. If James were here this morning and we asked him, 
When did you get it? John 7, you're saying, oh, I want you because you, have, you love the praise of man. When did you get it? How did you change? How did you turn? I think he would say this right here. God gives greater grace. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. James chapter 4, verse 7 is John chapter 7, verse 17. Be willing to come before him. Don't seek your own glory. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable. Mourn. Weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Be contrite over your sin. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And what? He will exalt you. The reality is, if we do the opposite of our, our heart's greatest desire, which is to receive the praise of man, if we do the opposite and we say, no, I'm giving God all the glory, we might never get praise of man, ever. And that's okay, because we're not going to be seeking that anymore. But you know whose praise, whose commendation we receive? The God of the universe will say to you, well done. You, you did well. Good and faithful servant. You've done well. So if we say today, I, I, I really want the praise of man. I want recognition. I want respect. I want, I want glory. Then on the last day, God's going to say, I never knew you. But if you would say, no, 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 I'm fighting against that in my heart. I don't want the praise of man. I, I know my heart wants it, but I want to submit myself. I want to give God glory. I'm not going to take any for myself. You may never hear the praises of man ever again, which probably isn't true, but you may never hear it in this life again. But one day you will hear the Father say to you, well done, I'm proud of you, I'm pleased in what you've done. Good and faithful servant. So what do we do? We need to look inward and we need to look upward. We need to look inward and be honest. If you're anything like me, these last like three, four weeks going through this book have just been a jackhammer destroying my soul and just pull, pulling to the surface sin, 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 sin. And I see how wicked and depraved and just flat out ugly I am. But if you stay there, if you stay there, you're going to become depressed, you're going to wallow in self-pity. You need to hear Jesus saying, I died to cleanse you. I died to forgive you. I died to take away that guilt. Everything that you look at and you go, yuck, I took it so that it would be gone and you would never have to experience the guilt, the shame ever again. What does it require? It requires that you humble yourself today and say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God, I want you to give me grace. And you flee to Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to end our time by fleeing to Jesus, individually and corporately. We're going to run to him. We're going to sing a song that speaks about pouring contempt on all of our pride by staring at the grace of God. A, a crucified Christ destroys pride. So let's stare at him together. And as the men distribute these elements, just hold them. We'll take them together after we sing. And as we take them, what we're doing is we're looking inward while we sing, but now we're going to look upward to see Jesus and the provision made at the cross to do away with our selfish pride, to do away with our self-exaltation, and to humble us to the place where we would say, I am willing, and I want you to be glorified. God, I pray now as we do soul-searching and as we've done it throughout this whole message, God, I pray that you'd be glorified. 
to reveal to us our depravity. May we not be afraid to dive deeply into our hearts and, and honestly assess, yes, we are wicked beyond what we could possibly comprehend, and that will make the grace of Jesus all the more sweet. So I pray that we would spend time pouring contempt on all of our pride as we stare at Jesus, and that you would reveal to us any wicked way and lead us this day in the way everlasting. We pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.